Welcome to the Lancet Oncology Podcast. My name is Aaron Van Dorn, speaking to you from the Lancet's New York office. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Charles L. Bennett of the South Carolina College of Pharmacy in Charleston, in Columbia, South Carolina. We will discuss the development and regulatory landscape for biosimilar oncology drugs and what the future holds for this new class of drugs. Can you tell us a little bit about the background to your study? background our study is um, I run a program that's supported by the NIH grants in the state of South Carolina, and we're into, we review the safety and efficacy of a wide range of drugs. And my background is in oncology and hematology, so we focus primarily in the oncology and hematology. And our vision, or my vision in the group I head, which is called the Southern Network and Adverse Reactions, or SONAR, is that the next wave of oncology drugs that will come out in the United States might be the biosimilar oncology drugs. And in order to be ahead of the curve, my group picked up and said, we're going to look and see in detail what are the biosimilar oncology drugs about, what are they like internationally, and how likely are they to be a big player in the United States market. Can you tell us what are biosimilar oncology drugs and why are they important? I try to use an analogy here. Some people would say, just about a biosimilar drug first before a biosimilar oncology drug. What is a biosimilar drug? And why is a drug that's a biosimilar not a generic pharmaceutical? So the analogy I have is this. A generic pharmaceutical is a small molecule, and I look at it like an identical twin to the drug that it's been made from. So if you buy a generic aspirin, it'll look and act and be exactly like a proprietary aspirin. A biosimilar drug is more complex. It's a it's a molecule. It's made through E. coli or yeast. It's got to be grown up. It has a tertiary or primary and a secondary structure. It has to be folded correctly. And so I consider a biosimilar drug to be like a fraternal twin and a generic drug to be like an identical twin. Now, when we say a biosimilar oncology drug, we just limit our focus to biosimilars that are used in the oncology space, either as supportive care or therapeutic care for cancer patients. Where are they most frequently used at the moment? In our paper, we have a nice table. And, you know, the way a biosimilar works, it has to come from a reference drug, reference biologic. And the other thing with the reference biologic is the reference biologic has to come off patent because otherwise you'd be infringing on a patent. This is where someone like a generic, you know, it runs past the patent. When we think about biologic drugs in oncology, we have to look at when their due dates are for their patents. And particularly, one of the most commonly used biologics in oncology is erythropoietin, or EPO. And that drug has come off patent in the United States, and has come off patent in Europe. And as a result, there's several biosimilar epotins that have been used in Europe since 2007. And similarly, the next drug that's a biologic that's come off patent is called filgastrum, or GCSF, which raises white cell counts. And that, too, has come off patent in many countries. And therefore, in Europe, we have many biosimilar filgastrums. In the United States, we do not actually have a biosimilar in the market yet for any particular product at all in the U.S. at this point. Why do you want to examine the differences in regulatory pathways for biosimilar oncology drugs? A couple things. Many people, everybody, I think, is talking about bending the cost curve. Can we take and make the cost curve more efficient? And let me be clear about that. A biologic may cost as much as 150000 per patient per year. It's, it's quite pricey. One of the goals people had hoped for with a biosimilar is, since it's got a shorter regulatory pathway, is that it may come to market at a substantial price reduction compared to the reference product. 
that actually has not worked out when we looked out internationally. And when we look at the international landscape, in countries where biosimilars are marketed, they may be 20 or 30% reduced relative to the reference drug, whereas as in the generic pharmaceuticals, they may be 90% reduced. So one of the things we wanted to look at the biosimilars and the international was, one is, or what do we need to do to get a regulatory approval? Because we don't have it in the United States, and we seem to be getting them country by country and the rest of the world, you know, with, with Europe, of course, leading the way, and countries like India, China, Russia, South Korea, following in the footsteps, Canada. And so one is the regulatory differences. Why is it so hard for the United States to have a, a regulatory approval pathway that's even workable? And secondly is internationally, have how well have these drugs taken up? Do they cover? And in fact, in Europe, in some markets, biosimilars might have 60% of the market share. And thirdly is these drugs are slightly different from the parent drug. Is there any evidence, and this is the major concern that we have in the United States, that there might be a small but real but significant risk of a side effect that can be very harmful but also very difficult to detect. And particularly, we're worried about the potential for antibodies to appear that are immunologic in nature. And then people develop, say, you give it erythropoietin. In the past, we described in the Newman Journal that a small but real number of people developed antibodies to erythropoietin because of the strange excipient in the product. And that led people to become very, very anemic. So here you were taking a drug that was to cure anemia, and the result was an antibody that made patients so anemic that they had to get transfused every other day. What implications do the differences in international regulations have for biosimilars? Well, these differences, I think, have a tremendous amount of implications. And, you know, what's interesting is these sort of parallel, if you look at some of the implications related to other things, like We've been looking recently at, with other investigators, they talk about e-cigarettes and international differences in regulation. And there's so many parallels, I think, between some of these other drugs and uh, biosimilars. For example, the Europeans have been, I think, really, really front and center on developing a, a pathway for regulatory approval and having this pathway work so, such that they have at least a dozen biosimilars in the market and been used since 2007. On the other hand, the United States only initiated discussions about biosimilars as part of Barack Obama's Affordable Care Act in 2010. And we have presumably come to the end of uh, what we term as guidances so that we can actually find a pathway for biosimilar approval. And then you look around the, the world at other countries, and other countries seem to be much more facile with uh, learning from the European experience and developing biosimilar pathways. And even the World Health Organization has made a guidance for biosimilar pathways. So at the end of the day, internationally, it looks to, uh, to us that the United States is many steps behind most other countries in the world in terms of finalizing a pathway that works, having that pathway actually get tried by a drug and see if it actually gets approval as biosimilar, and finally get biosimilars into the marketplace where we would save, I think, potentially 10 or 20%, which is not the 90% we'd like to have seen, but 10 to 20% on a drug that's $150,000 is still an important savings in terms of the healthcare economy. So what else does your review conclude about the differences in clinical safety and regulatory considerations for biosimilar oncology drugs worldwide? Well, I think if you think about what we've done is the differences in clinical first is considerations is there's a, a 
quite a wide range of clinical considerations to be to be thought about. For instance, when you generate, when you approve a biosimilar and you have it out there, can it have the same exact usage that the parent drug has, the reference drug? So clinically, for instance, filgastrum, again, it has about seven different FDA indications and seven different reg- regulatory indications in Europe. And a biosimilar pathway in Europe, the EMA has said, if you get through and we get you biosimilar status for one of those indications, we'll extrapolate so you can have indications and approval for all seven. It's really a tremendous benefit. Some countries say that you got that we're not so sure we're going to give you those uh, extra six, and you'll have to prove yourself one by one by one. So clinically, there's a range, but some of the range allow you to have extrapolation. And the other things that's interesting is some countries have pharmacist substitution. So you go in, say in France, and you get a prescription for a reference product, and the pharmacist realizes at the end of the day that there might be 10 or 20% saving, and that might be important. And you get and you take home the biosimilar product, not the reference product. Now, what about safety? Safety. This is a big, big dilemma and a big, big um, question mark because, as I mentioned, these safety concerns might be antibodies. They might be very difficult to find, and they might be, um, they might, uh, be serious but not very common, like I've talked about with the antibodies in the EPO that we wrote about in the Newman Journal. And here's the issue of the safety. Some countries say we don't want to see a biosimilar on the market until a very large safety study has been done prior to approval. And other countries say, we want to be very cautious, but we'll allow the product on the market and we'll mandate a very large post-approval safety study. And we'll see if we find anything come up. And that's the way the European market has really been, is they use these post-approval studies. In the United States, there's been a lot of debate. Do we need to figure out the safety with pre-approval studies or post-approval studies. And the final thing is, in, in India, say, or some of these other countries, these biosimilars have not been approved by a formal biosimilar pathway, as I mentioned in the two, second requirement. In some instances, we've seen the biosimilars type product in India and other countries that are um, out in the market, and they do have very real and very serious antibody-mediated toxicities that you don't see with the same kind of product in Europe. And that is because the quality control system in, say, Asia may not be as intense and as rigorous as it is in Europe. And this is leading to the American debate. Do we want to end up with biosimilars that look like the Asian biosimilars, or do we want biosimilars that look like the European biosimilars? And those are quite a big thing. And finally, the regulatory considerations is uh, you. The regulatory considerations is you got to get a biosimilar approved by a biosimilar pathway, and that's and how much work does it cost or require to do that? In many cases, we've been able to say that you do a clinical trial that shows that the biosimilar has about the same safety and efficacy as a parent drug. That's a very in quotation marks about the same. And that's the regulatory considerations that people use to say that it's not a big phase three trial with a thousand people with a p-value less than 0.05. How do you see oncology biosimilars being used in the future? Well, in the future, uh, you know, it's really, it's really, uh, we don't know where the future is going to lead us. Particularly in the United States, just recently, two drugs have applied to the FDA to be considered as biosimilars. 
and there's some more coming through the system, biosimilar epotens and biosimilar GCSFs. We don't know whether they'll get through the market, and if they get through the market in the, in the United States, whether there'll be litigation that will hold these drugs from actually being used. So one thing in the future may be, say, in the United States, is we may not see much uptake, and I'm predicting that for our analysis. I don't see a biosimilar actually entering the U.S. market for several years. And the second thing is we had assumed, and all the investment bankers had talked about, when these biosimilars come to the U.S. market, there's going to be a tremendous bending of the cost curve. We don't see that again either. I don't see the cost curve bending at all, or bending very little. And finally, in terms of how they'd be used in the future, there's an opposite, opposite idea. I have seen some creative manufacturers, say, in India, where a reference product in, with a large population they have in India is way too expensive to be used by hardly anybody. And in India, they've developed these biosimilars that may not have the same quality control as we have in Europe or want to have in the United States, but they have the price that's maybe 80% reduced. And so people in India who had access to no bi- biologic have gone from no access to no biologic to access to real biologics with a real cost differential. You said just before that you, you think it'll be several years before the U.S. approves biosimilars for the market. What do you think the difference in uptake will be between Europe, where already going forward, and the United States, where we're falling back? I think the difference in Europe and the U.S. is, as we've seen many in the economics of healthcare, the Europeans are very, very focused on value in health. They have central economies, medical economies, and they have a pretty significant uptake on the biosimilars because of economic reasons and the way inequality is about the same, as they say. In the United States, on the other hand, I don't see that happening. We don't, uh, I don't see the uptake happening because we've started to do some market research with uh, Dennis Rach, who's in New Mexico. He's done it. We're going to present in Amsterdam at the International Society of Pharmacoeconomics. And what Dennis has shown is when you talk to clinicians, the thing that clinicians worry about in the United States the most is safety. And they will not take an economic benefit at the risk of having a, a safety issue because if a patient has a safety problem, there's undoubtedly going to be a lawsuit behind that, and physicians don't want to take that risk. So I see in the United States it's going to be a, a long way before we get these biosimilars approved and taken up, uh, whereas countries in, like in Europe, it makes a big difference. And then if you go to India or China or Russia, where the quality may not be quite as good as in uh, Europe, but the economics are so important, and these countries have so much population that they need and they will have a very markedly reduced biosimilar cost structure, and they'll have tremendous usage. Now, one last thing I want to make a mention. Some of these things have to be it's interesting for erythropoietin. It's come off patent, and there's been real competition with erythropoietins that are not biosimilars in Europe, or even with the, uh, the parent drug erythropoietin, where the company does not, the manufacturer does not want to lose out to the biosimilar. What has happened, really kind of uh, interesting in Europe, is the price of erythropoietin, the parent drug, reference drug, has dropped. And there's no price differential between biosimilar erythropoietin and erythropoietin that's been used for 20 years. And as a result, the market share of erythropoietin itself has not dropped that much. Well, Dr. Bennett, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. My pleasure.